have come with open hearts oh let the ancient words Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> Let's take a minute. We're going to take a couple minutes to pray together this morning. Uh, God, your, your word tells us that the church, that your house, is a house of prayer for all the nations. And so we, uh, we want to pray. Uh, God, we want, to, we want to seek your face. And even this last week, God, we've been reminded of just the the ache of this world, the lostness of our world um, over the last couple weeks. As we pray, uh, church family, I I do want to remind us of just the the individuals and families affected by the the shooting in Buffalo, shooting in an Asian congregation in California, the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, this last week. But God, there are many, uh, many even this morning that are, are going through another and a long line of firsts. Um, worshiping, being at church without one of their children, without a family member, without a parent. And so God, we, um, we pray for, for you to be near to the brokenhearted, to heal those who are crushed in spirit. It's easy for us to disconnect from pain that isn't right upon us. And so we want to pray um, for those who are affected. We want to pray uh, for your, your work in this world through your people, that there would be healing that comes through the, the people of God ministering to those in this world who are aching and hurting. I pray that for the churches in these areas, in Buffalo, Uvalde, Texas, and in California, that your people would be actively ministering to those who are hurting, to those who have lost loved ones. Um, and God, we understand more and more, the more we see brokenness and pain in this world, just the, the longing to see you come quickly. That we, we long to see you return. God, we, we long to see your name vindicated in every single wrong, every single shadow and, and echo of evil in this world made right and justice prevail. We're grateful that our hope isn't in this world. Um, your word tells us clearly that, that we belong to another world. We, we don't find home here ultimately, that we belong to a, a city and a dwelling place that's been made for us by the very hands of God. And so I pray that we would live for that world ahead. Help us to be those as a family of faith, as believers who who make our lives count for the sake of the gospel. Uh, We need to hear this message this morning. Uh, We need to live this life, this day, in light of that great day, the one that will soon come where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We want to see more people on this side of eternity do just that. So help us as your people to walk by faith, to be diligent, to be ministers of mercy among those who are hurting among us. God, where your people come in and where anyone in this room comes in with a a sense of the nearness of the ache of pain in this world, I pray that you would minister to them, that you draw near to them as they draw near to you. God, we need a a fresh word from you this morning. We need your spirit to, 
to move through your word for your people. As Chris prayed, I pray that I would be a, a man of God, as it were, filled with the spirit of God, delivering the word of God to the people of God for the glory of God. And, and we need your help in every single aspect of that. We need your help to make that happen. So increase our affection for you. Uh, increase our, uh, the eternality of our, exp- our, our expectations and our perspective and loosen our hands from this world that offers us so little security and help us to be secure in you and your promises this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Uh, good to see you. My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm grateful to be worshiping with you this morning. You can grab your Bibles, and we'll go to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to continue our study through 1 Peter, uh, the first letter of Peter to the church in the first century, and we're going to be in verses 7 through 11 this morning. I'm going to jump right in to read the text, and then we'll see how we do and making some observations from it. I want you to read with me First Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 7 to start. This is God's Word. It says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's the word of God. What would you do if you knew this was your last day on earth? Like, how would, you, how would you live if you knew that you had 24 hours to live? There are probably moments for all of us where we have contemplated, even just briefly, the answer to that question. Maybe in this last week, if, if we spend any time thinking about the frailty of life, even just watching helplessly the news give us the story of the mass shooting in Texas. And you realize just in an instant that life can change. Life can be taken away. And this life here is, is here one moment and it's gone the next. And so it's actually a really appropriate question to ask. What would I do with my time? Like what would I do with my life if this was my final day? And so there's a statement like right at the beginning of this text that that rattled us like almost immediately, where Peter says the end of all things is at hand. And I would submit to you, it should do the same thing of that what I just described, the question I gave you right at the front end, should, it should create in us this sense of urgency of like, yeah, what am I doing with my life? Like if, if I knew the end of all things is at hand, how, how would I live my life? Maybe to ask it a different way, is there anything that would change about what I'm doing with my life? And I think when we contemplate those questions, whatever form they might come into our minds, our hearts, there's something that happens. There's a, there's a clarity that takes place, and we realize the things that are actually the most important. Whether it's things like, I'm gonna spend, I would spend more time with my family. 
I would tell everyone I, I know and love that I love them. I would hold my loved ones tighter. I'd be invested in things that matter eternally. I'd spend the, every single second on things that have purpose and meaning and not just waste my time. And I think that's something of what Peter does through this statement. It's not just merely hyperbole. And I want to demonstrate that here in just a second. But the main message I want to give this morning is that we need to live today with the end in view. That throughout this letter, Peter, Peter motivates us for today by placing the end in full view. He motivates us for this day by pointing us forward to, to that day, this great day where the end of time will come, where Jesus will return or we'll meet, meet him face to face because we have left this temporary place. But in all that, the question remains, like, how are we living today? We live in today with the end in view. And I want to take you on a little bit of a journey. So I want you to have your Bibles with you. If you're using some device to read your Bible, that's fine. I'll trust you're doing just that. You can grab a chair Bible. I think it's around page 950. It'll be up on the TVs as well. But I want to demonstrate this. This is not just a moment in this text where Peter is emphasizing the fact that this, this life goes quickly. And it will soon be at an end. It's actually all throughout the letter. And I want to take us on a quick journey to demonstrate that, just so you know I'm not just hyping it up. All right? So, chapter 1. Let's go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Peter says this. He says, Who, meaning you, who have been saved, who God has caused to be born again through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, those are some words we'll hear in just a little bit again, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So be encouraged in these times, suffering Christian, that's who this letter is written to, those who are suffering because of their faith in Jesus, He's saying, but be encouraged in these times because God is guarding and keeping you for a salvation he will reveal to you in the last time, in these last days. You may be grieved today, but the tested strength of your faith will usher in great joy on that day when Jesus is revealed. Keep going. Chapter 1, verse 13. Peter says, therefore, in light of your salvation, this calling, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, the blessing of our salvation is framed by the end. Be watchful today. Be hopeful for that day because grace is coming. Praise God for that, right? We talked about that early in the book. You probably don't remember us praying it this morning. Is it for the people of God? For the Like, we have hope when Jesus returns, This wonderful picture is that he comes not to judge his people, but to bring them ultimate and final grace. He comes on the clouds bringing grace and rescue to his people. And that is wonderfully good news. And the outcome of your faith is already determined because of Jesus. When he arrives, he's bringing grace to his people. When he visits, he will will not have to fear, but our faith will become our sight. We'll receive grace And he'll receive glory on that day. 
Chapter 2, verse 11 to 12. Let's keep journeying through. I'm going to try to make this brief, but I want to demonstrate the point. Chapter 11. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 11. We see these words, sojourners and exiles. You've been with us throughout this series. The series is called Pilgrims. That demonstrates the fact that Christians are just sojourners and exiles, temporarily going through this land on the journey to another world, another life, namely a life spent with God in heaven for eternity. And it says, as sojourners and exiles, you can pan down to verse 12, keep your conduct among the just honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The end of all things is at hand. This is these echoes of the same reality. Live today with the end in view. Be faithful to God today because your conduct, what God actually uses to turn people to Him on that final day when He visits. What a wonderful and humbling picture. Chapter 4, verse 13. Let's keep going. I got a couple more here for you. Chapter 4, verse 13, which we'll get to here in a couple weeks. Actually, no, it'll be next week. Chapter 4, verse 13, suffering Christian once again. Peter says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When is his glory going to be revealed? When he returns. The day of visitation, the great day of the glory and the grace of God arriving through the return of Jesus. In chapter 5, verse 1, even to pastors. Let's think about this earlier this week. It's relevant for, for me and for Chris and for Bill when we think about shepherding the church. You could sum up the role of a pastor as a shepherd, shepherding sheep, taking care of, and guarding the flock against error and against the, the enemy and trying to present everyone complete in Christ. In chapter 5, in verse 1, this emphasis on the end is still present because Peter says this, says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, pastors, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. Why? Be examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Live today, pastor today, with the end in mind. There's going to come a day where your time here will be up. You won't be able to spend your days any longer. So the question is, how are you living your life today? Are you living your life today as if you have endless days? You probably know that. Intellectually, you don't have those. But are we living today as if the end is near? As if we don't have a guarantee for tomorrow? As the people of God, do we live with a sense of urgency in our own personal holiness, living for God and making him known? Because we're very mindful of the fact that really at the end of this all, we can say, we walk out of here this morning, the end is near. It's nearer than it was yesterday. So we live in today in light of that great day. Your suffering today may be great, but it isn't nearly as great and glorious as what God will reveal to you on that day. And it may be today that your eyes see tears. But there will be one day where every tear is wiped from your eyes. And you'll see glory and grace fully, completely, finally, forever, never to be mourning or tearful again.
that great, glorious, gracious day. And church families, I've been thinking about this this week. And I was, and I was, I was probably rattled by the shooting in Texas more so than I have been in a while. And it's probably to my shame because we see things in periodicals, right? But there's 19 or so families that didn't read about that in the news. There are families that woke their child up that morning, that night, couldn't put the same child to bed. And it's easy to distance yourself from the, the pain that isn't your own. And I think that something of what happens in this book confronts us with the fact that this world you live in is not your home. And it offers you so much difficulty. As you obey God and follow him, there's a way in which that difficulty will be even more present for you. But take heart. This world is fleeting and this life is short. And the end of all things is at hand. So live today in light of that day. Live for this time in light of that great time when truly time will be no more. Today is short. And our whole life and the suffering within it can accurately be summed up as a little while. And you see that in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. We saw it as well earlier in the book. In light of how short this life is and how long eternity is, the different ways you see this in the Bible, it's always going to be appropriate to say it's almost over. When you think about how long eternity, when you try to just wrap your mind around how long forever is, and you think about the time we have here, it's always appropriate to say the end is at hand. It's near. It's coming soon. It's going to be over soon. Those words that we see throughout the Bible preached by John the Baptist and Jesus and James and the New Testament as well. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's the eminence of the end of life. It moves us to a place of obedience and conduct today that should be profoundly motivated by that great tomorrow. Live today with the end in view. It's something like this. I brought a frame. I don't usually use visuals just because they can go south and you can remember the picture more than the actual principle. But if you think about your life, I'm going to use this again here in just a second. We think about like this book and what we just read through just for a second. It's as if it puts your life in a frame. And you begin to see your life in light of eternal things, which I use the Bible to depict that. I think this whole book is somewhat dedicated to putting your life in a biblical framework particularly in this text, to say the end of all things is at hand. Live your life today as if tomorrow and that great day is severely close. It's so close. It's so fast approaching. Don't waste your time on meaningless things and invest your life in the things of God. And, and as we keep going in this text, if you look back at the text with me for today, verses 7 through 11, there's a way in which you could sum up. You can kind of compress Verses 8 through the first half of verse 11 into this summary statement. I'll read it this way. Live today with the end in view. And so if you summarize verses 7 through the first, ver first half of verse 11, which gives us some hospitality, love one another, serve one another, speak the word of God, which we'll get to in a moment. We could summarize it all in this way. Live today with the end in view in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, love one another with the love of God. 
Show hospitality. Open your homes and your lives with the Spirit of God. Don't complain about it. Serve one another with the strength that God provides. One another with the Word of God. And all this should be done ultimately for the glory and the fame and the supreme worth of God. And it seems we can confidently say, don't miss this part, that our conduct today affects how much glory God will receive on that day. It might rattle you a little bit. It's like, wait a second. I mean, God is glorious. He possesses glory. Like, he's glorious beyond our imagination. But there's a way in which our conduct in this life is motivated by maximizing the glory of God as seen through and in his people in this world, don't, don't mistake this, that your conduct matters for the glory of God. It should be motivating that we get a part in maximizing the, the worth and the glory of God as seen in this world as people watch us and interact with us and ultimately, that's what this therefore is there for, right? So this is urgent. The end is at hand. Life is almost finished. Therefore, go back to the text. This is verse 7. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers or for the sake of prayer. So this idea of being of sound judgment, possessing a sober spirit is be self-controlled and calm. It's an interesting parallel to, hey, the end of all things is at hand. Be calm. That's not, that's not what people tend to do. You've probably seen the Keep Calm t-shirts, right? It's like keep calm and eat tacos. Like keep calm and use the force. Like keep calm and carry on. Like you, you can go check them out. There's, they're all over the place. And this text is basically saying keep calm and pray. The end of all things is at hand. It is nearer than you imagine. But stay calm and pray. And people who aren't filled with the Spirit of God, you know what they do? They panic. They don't pray. And Juan Sanchez, one of the commentators reading through this book, he says, keep your head. People who lose their heads don't pray. They panic. And a lot of such a stirring statement, like the end of all things at hand, the commands that follow are remarkably ordinary. Keep calm and pray. In Jesus' darkest hour, at the end of his life, when, the, when he felt the nearness of the pain of the cross, he prayed. So the people of God were called to not panic, but pray. But how about us? Is that what we do? Do we pray instead of panic? Are we more like Chicken Little than Peter? The sky is falling. You know, every, every turn, we, every sign we see in the news, like we scramble around as, as those without hope or any sort of bearing. But Peter's like, be self-controlled. Keep calm and pray. Seek God. The end is at hand, so pray, don't panic. And notably, if I could just say this real quickly, we don't hear in this section, the end of all things is at hand. So withdraw from society, make an impenetrable fortress in the woods, stock up food, gold, water, ammo, and snacks. That's not what this says. That's not what it says. But, people, but Christians do that. And we chuckle, but that's one of the reactions to the end of all things is at hand. Get me out of here. I'm just going to distance myself from the world until Jesus returns. That's not what he called us to do. 
He told us to draw near, to pray, and notably, open your homes. Open your hands. That's a depiction of love here. We saw it earlier in the book. This, this extended hand that runs to people with movement and purpose and intentionality and truth. It doesn't say the end is near, so spend all your time, energy, looking at the signs and the news as to when this whole thing is going down. It's not what, that's not what it says. He says, stay calm and pray and be purposeful with your life. Love one another well. Pray, love one another, and you could argue that all these things are maybe separate expressions of walking in the Spirit. You might even be able to say that maybe what happens after another's maybe are expressions of love. I don't know that it matters a whole lot, but we're going to spend time talking about this first layer, and we're going to spend most of our time here. He says this, stay calm, pray. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. It's an interesting passage. And last week we looked at this call to think the way Jesus thinks so we can walk the way Jesus walks. And there's a way in which in this text now we're being challenged to love the way Jesus loves particularly among the people of God. We're called to love one another earnestly from the heart, fervently working hard intentionally to love each other despite our differences, despite the difficulties we find because we're broken and sinful still, but we're called to love the way Jesus loves through his power and following his pattern. And this becomes really important to us when we do life with one another And if you've been in community at all, living close to other believers, you recognize that, hey, we're not perfect yet. Like, we're still in process. Anybody seen that before? Come on, nobody raised their hand in this place? Y'all have seen that? You've been doing life with people. You're like, okay, these people are still in process. Which gives me hope, because I am too. But we're still, like, even after the miracle of regeneration, we're still in process. Like, we're not in heaven yet. We're not yet perfect And as a result, there are moments where we sin against each other. You live in family long enough, you know there's confrontations, tensions, and disagreements. And so the call in the midst of that is love one another earnestly because love has this covering effect in the body of Christ. Now, we have to understand a little, what does this mean? Does it mean it's just love sweeps sin under the rug, like doesn't deal with like issues? Or is that what Peter is saying? Well, no. Take the balance of the New Testament in view, and you think of the gospel even. The gospel has vision for sin having consequences. That's what the cross is. The cross was the necessity of payment for sins. So it doesn't mean God's love for us doesn't brush our sins under the rug, minimize our wrongdoing, or temporarily hide it. The love of Jesus has covered our multitude of sins. In his mercy and grace, God provided an eternal covering for his people. And through faith in Jesus, all of our sins are applied to him. And by a miracle of grace, his righteousness now covers us. So we we get to stand before God covered by foreign righteousness. We're considered right in the sight of God, covered, as it were, by the blood of Jesus. 
all because of the great love with which he loved us. And in light of that great love, we can and must love one another in the same way, applying the grace we've been shown and that we know which covers a multitude of sins. Let me just read another passage from Colossians 3. Paul says it this way, as he talks about the old uniform that we used to wear and now put on the new uniform, the new man that's yours in Christ. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Haley, you want to join me up here just for a second? I want to demonstrate this real practically. So Haley and I, throughout the years, this is my wife Haley, so if I call her some term of endearment, you'll know I'm not being inappropriate with some woman in the body. Can you hold this for me for a second? So we talk about this as we go through, through premarital counseling a lot is that when you, when you apply, why don't you hold that up, just kind of in front. Hold it low, hold it low for a second. So we didn't rehearse this at all. It'll be clunky, but I think it'll get the point across. So when you think about the way you relate to one another as believers, it's true in marriage, it's true just in general in the body of Christ, because of the reality that we are still in process and we sin against each other, what can happen is there's, there's really, I'll sift it down to two potentials. You can, you can see one another without the frame of the gospel, and what will happen is inevitably, I'll just say, Haley will see me firstly in light of my sin and my sins. And I have them, P.S. I know it's surprising. <laughs> but I'm broken, I'm in process just like you. So in marriage, and in every single relationship, it becomes vital for the health of that relationship, for the glory of God, for this frame of the gospel to move up whereby Haley can look at me and not see my sin first. But through the lens of grace, be able to say, you know what? I have been forgiven much, therefore I will forgive much. I have been shown grace, therefore through the framework of the Bible and the gospel, I'm going to extend grace. And that's what I believe this passage is talking about. So instead of the brokenness that comes and purely seeing one another in light of our own offenses, our sinfulness, when the gospel comes in view, we get to see one another in light of the grace of God. Thank you, babe. I appreciate it. Love you. You can give her a hand or something. It's always weird when it's always weird when someone steps down from the stage. You feel like you should acknowledge their existence or something. And I hope that's helpful because I do think it's vital for us as a church family, right? Because we talked about earlier in the book, like Jesus said that the world around you is going to know you're my followers by what? By the way you love one another. Central to the identity of the believer in the world is we have a peculiar love for each other. And I would say this passage, it says, love one another earnestly Because love covers a multitude of sins. It's not that love has this way of just brushing over sin. But we can can bear with one another. You've seen the description. You've heard it at weddings in 1 Corinthians 13, among other things. It says that love doesn't keep an account of wrongs. It's not resentful. That it endures instead of getting exasperated with the inevitability of people who are broken still and working through sin issues, love one another earnestly from the heart. Be gracious in your love for each other. It's a little bit like it chokes out the life of sin in some ways. Almost like that landscape fabric you put down in your yard. 
It doesn't allow light to get to those weeds. But it suppresses them from growing bigger still. There's a way in which when love is effectually working in the family of God, among the people of God, that it has the same effect. It keeps life from being given to those areas of sin that inevitably kind of flash up in times as we do life with one another. It wars against the temptation of perpetual criticism. We can extend grace to one another to remember that everyone is still in process. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I'm going to finish up just kind of summarizing a little bit the rest of these encouragements. Now, whether they're an expression of love or kind of isolated under themselves, either way, they're effective to challenge us. Because we, as we mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, like the end of all things is at hand, right? This is significant. Live today in light of that day. And this, the simple, ordinary things we're called to do, among them is be hospitable. Open your lives to other people. I want to ask a question. I want to see a raise of hands. How many of you at some point in your life have been impacted, maybe even pulled into a church or the church or a significant relationship that encouraged you beyond this initial interaction just simply by someone saying, hey, why don't you come over and have a meal or why don't you come have a cup of coffee with me? How many of you have been impacted by that simple of a moment? I would guess we all have to some degree. Just this simple expression. We did a whole hospitality series, ironically, right before COVID hit. Y'all remember that? That was fantastic planning. It's just like COVID is like the kryptonite to hospitality. But the biblical mandate's still there. Like we got to relearn in some ways how to do it. But open lives, open doors was the whole premise of that series. There's a way in which when we open our lives to one another and to the world around us, that God uses us as a, a mechanism to reach other people. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I can't preach. Like, I don't, I'm more of an introvert. I don't know what to do. I don't know where my gifts are. Well, maybe this is just a primary way that God is calling you to serve. Open your home. Partner with someone who maybe is the extrovert. And you just use your home, your resources to welcome people in. As we think about having college students and for us as families, for those who are single among us, we should be quick to open our homes, be looking for opportunities, hospitable and notably without complaining. How many of you opened your home before to, to other people, just in general? How many of you have had moments where you didn't want to open your home before to other people? It's just the same group of people. <laughs> Every single person. Because almost every time you open your home, you're hospitable, there's this fight that takes place. Like, I would just rather not have other people in my space. Our kids have to realize, I would rather not have people up, like in my toys and have to share. And, but we struggle with that as adults perpetually because the very thing we want to do when we exercise hospitality is we want to complain, <laughs> complain about it. Like, man, I'd just so much rather just not be with people. Why? Because people are complex. Life would be easy if there weren't people. People make things hard because we're messy, right? But be hospitable without grumbling. Open our lives to open doors without complaining. Because we're confronting selfishness. We, again, have to renew our minds, think about the way in which God has loved us, welcomed us to his table so we can extend the same 
benefiting grace to other people. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Gifts, spiritual gifts, enablements by the Spirit of God are given to every single person in the body of Christ. Despite whether or not you know it, or whether you know it in clarity and specificity, you have been given gifts that aren't for you. They're to benefit other people and to glorify God. That's a fair summary of spiritual gifts in the Bible. God gives his people gifts to build up the body of Christ and to glorify his name. They're not for you. Exercise them. You've been entrusted things, just like you've been entrusted your finances. They're deposited as God has, God has given you to steward well in this world. How are you stewarding your gifts? If we haven't done a good job as pastors pursuing you to, to equip you to use your gifts, then come see us. Come ask us. Like, hey, I really am trying to figure out how to serve. We would love to have overwhelming amounts of those conversations and be trying to figure out, like, how do we plug all these people in that are so eager to serve everywhere? That would be a really positive problem to have. But don't be satisfied knowing that God has given you gifts. If you're a Christian in this room, that is true, objectively so, and you're not using those gifts. That's not what God has for you. That's not his intent for you. He gave you gifts to, to use, to steward. And notably, they're all by God's grace. Everything we have is owing to the grace of God, right? You've heard me say it before. Everything beyond nothing for us is grace. Every single bit. Certainly that applies to our gifts. Verse 11, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Oracles of God is really just the this, this speech of God, the word of God given to others through his people. This doesn't necessarily just apply to preaching like I'm doing right now. But you have the people of God filled with the spirit of God, giving away the word of God to other people of God for the glory of God. You see this all throughout the New Testament. I don't have time to unpack where you see this. I've got a couple other passages I'll point you to. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 29, and then chapter 5, verse 19. You see the, in, in 4.15, it says, Speak the truth in love. Verse 29, Let your mouth speak that which is good for upbuilding or for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Chapter 5, verse 19, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians 3.16, maybe one of the clear depictions of this, says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So as you go around relating to the people of God, your opinions, your feelings, your musings, we don't use that word very often, ultimately are not what matters the most. It's the word of God given to the people of God. Speak as one who is speaking the words of God. Give away the truth of Scripture to your brothers and sisters to build them up. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I'm going to assume this is the case, but we love to be able and self-sufficient. Or we talked about earlier in the book, like the whole posture of like, hey, you're not the boss of me. Don't tell me what to do. That's just a... It's an outpouring of the human heart that's lost. But we love to be self-sufficient. We love to feel adequate. 
That's why it's so difficult to embrace the picture and command of boast in your weakness in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God is the one who's made you adequate and su- sufficient. His power is perfected in your weakness. So serve with the strength that God supplies. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to be seen as strong and able and sufficient. But God doesn't save or enlist the able and sufficient. You see this in 1 Corinthians. Not many of you were those who were smart enough, able enough, the powerful. But God in His grace and kindness, He uses things that aren't to speak to and to lead things that are not and those who are not. God takes the broken. He supplies the strength for us to serve and even to serve this morning as I come up here, just mindful of my own weakness this morning. Just kind of battered by some things in this week. I'm grateful you don't trust in my strength. Like you don't need to hear from me. You need to hear the word of God. And so in the moments of weakness that are inevitable, serve with the strength that God provides. Make that a prayer. Lord, help me to serve you with the strength that you provide. You're giving me everything I need to do what you call me to do. So help that be my posture as I serve. The church family, as those who have been saved by God's grace and his favor, I pray that we would really feel the joyful weight of what we find at the end of this section the end of verse 11. Go there with me one last time. We'll read it one more time together before we close off. Live today in light of the end in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And God, we, um, we desperately need your help. We, uh, left to ourselves, we, we clamor for comfort. Uh, we cling at times to our own things and our own time. We often want to withhold forgiveness when we, we've been forgiven so much. And so the, the calling that you placed on us through this passage and countless others to be those who live differently in this world. God, we desperately need your help. I pray that you'd help us as a church, as your followers, to be those who live each and every day like it's our last. It seems cliche almost to say something like that, but God, your word, this book has reminded us time and time again that we need to live each day as if it's last, to live every single moment as if the moment you're returning is right around the corner. Would you motivate us? Would you fill us with a sense of urgency as those who love Christ in this life, as those who live in community, that we would be faithful to love one another earnestly, sacrificing for one another, seeing one another through the framework of the gospel, quick to forgive, quick to bear with one another, that we persevere instead of being exasperated with one another as we're in process. And God, I pray as well that you would you create in us a burden for, for mission, for our commission to make you known. God, there's men and women just literally across the street from us, right next to us in our homes, in our workplace, in our classrooms, 
who will one day, apart from Christ, will find you to be their judge and not their Savior. And you put us here to do a job to proclaim the excellencies of you who has called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And so would you fill us with an urgency that we just simply don't possess in and of ourselves. We can't conjure it up. We need your help. We need your spirit's help. We need your word to do its work in our hearts to, to make us men and women who lay a hold of our call to make you known to the people around us, to the world you placed us in. Jesus, we, we thank you for your your immeasurable love and kindness toward us, that you took all of our sin upon yourself, that you who were innocent became guilty, you who possessed all the riches of heaven became poor so that through your poverty we might become rich. And we love you, we glory in you, we boast in you, our confidence is solely in you. And where anyone in this room finds some supposed confidence in the presence of God, in anything other than Christ, would you crush it this morning? That we glory only in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Do work in us as your people. Do work in this place for your glory, for our joy, for our good. We love you. We thank you for your word and pray that it would continue to do its work in our lives today and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.